Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. All right, good morning. How are we doing? Doing good? Awesome. Very good to be here. Um, I'm going to read our main scripture for today, um, but I'm not going to like go through this passage like line by line. Um, but what I want to do actually is I'm going to read it really slowly because I think this text um, overall and in its heart um, really gives the broadest meaning uh, to what I want to say today. Um, but I'm actually going to be looking at like a biblical overview, looking at a ton of different passages um, through the scriptures. Um, and we're still in this Good News Gospel series. And what I want to do this morning is talk about how to respond to the gospel. Like, what, how, how do we respond to what's been said? So I want to kind of present that. All right, today's teaching text comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So Lord, I just thank you for um, time that um, we set aside during the week um, to become present to you and become present to one another. I pray that you would speak right now, that your still small voice would bring hope where there's hopelessness, that it would bring courage where we need to be lifted up, Lord, meet us in this place by your Holy Spirit for some of us in the room right now that really feel what Paul is describing as suffering, death, old self. I just pray that you would breathe new life into us right now by your Spirit. Be here, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but I often get decision fatigue. We make so many decisions. Um, I was reading one research report from Cornell this week that estimated that we make 226 decisions each day about food alone. That's just about food. Um, there's one stat that's floating around about decision making that the average adult makes 35,000 remotely conscious decisions a day. It seemed a little high to me, um, but we get the point, right? We wake up and we say, am I going to snooze? Am I not going to snooze, right? What podcast or album am I going to be listening to on the commute? Which way should I go on the commute? Should I even check my phone, right, to see if my train is on time or if it's not on time? Do I make my own coffee? Do I buy coffee? And so let's begin here thinking about ourselves. What kind of decision maker are you? 
What kind of decision maker are you? Where are my impulsive people at? First, first decision, okay, thank you, thank you. First option sounds the best, let's just go with that one, right? Let's be done making the decision. What about our compliant decision makers? Whatever is the most popular, I'm just going with that, right? Uh, what about my delegating people? Like, I'm not making the decision, you tell me where to be, I will be there, I don't care at all. And then you don't have to raise your hand for this one, but then there's the avoidant decision maker, right? Put off the decision till the very end because, here's the truth, maybe this is all you hear today, nothing motivates like a deadline, right? The last minute is fine, right? And then, of course, I know this is where most of you are. You're the balanced and reflecting decision makers. You weigh the factors involved. You anticipate possible outcomes. You have spreadsheets for things like this. How is my decision going to make the greatest impact, right? And it's interesting because... Um, these are ways of coping, right? The kind of decision maker we are are the ways of coping with the amount of decisions we have to make. And here is the reason this is so hard, all right? Here's a picture for you. It's Whole Foods' fault, all right? I, I, I thought about this a lot this week, and I thought, I feel very old. Because when I was a kid, you go get milk, and there's two, maybe three options, right? Whole, skim, and 2%. Like, that, that was it, Right? And then all of a sudden, you know, the soy came along, and then the hemp came along, and then I got on Team Almond, and then I got on Team Oat, and I'm going to be there for the rest of my life, I promise. We're going to find something else to milk, probably, and it will be, it will be legendary. Uh, my, my mom was in town last week, and she says to me, she called, and she said, um, she said hey, um, can I get you something to drink? I'm going to go to the corner. And I said, yeah, will you grab me a sparkling water? And she was like, uh, yeah, which, which one, you know? I was like, Mom, it's so obvious. Howl's, black cherry, it's delicious, it's so sparkly, it's perfect, right? Decision-making is exhausting, right? It's, it's just exhausting where we just ask so many things every single day, but the reality is we have to make decisions, right? And decisions are actually done in um, response to something, in, in response to a question somebody asks us, in, in response to a desire that we have. And one of the things I've been mindful about in understanding this good news gospel is that um, it's presented to us and it's keep, it keeps unknowingly asking us for a response. It's leading us to make decisions about it. And what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks here is really um, putting forth the gospel and saying, hey, what is this thing that Jesus said was so central to us and to our life? And um, as I've been preparing and thinking I keep thinking it's asking us something. It's asking us to respond to it. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about what we're actually responding to and like how do we actually respond to what Jesus put in front of us? What, what is the ask of the spiritual life in following Jesus? Um, I don't know if you've, if you've read Mere Christianity, um, but in it, C.S. Lewis, he wisely shows us that if we're really understanding the person of Jesus, we don't, we don't just get to pick and choose from you know, his scriptures and from his sayings. We don't actually get to just look at him and say, wow, Jesus is a really good moral teacher, and if I listen to the things that he has to say, I'll probably be a better person. But actually, Jesus himself drives us to make decisions about him. And this is how C.S. Lewis famously put it. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone uh, the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, and this gets intense here, but he says he would either be a lunatic 
on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and worship him and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And he goes on um, to, to present um, this and say, Jesus is either a liar, right? He was just lying when he was walking the earth and saying these things. He was a lunatic. He was absolutely crazy, or he actually is Lord. But Jesus doesn't allow us to come follow him and say, wow, he's just a really good teacher. And so my point is that the gospel elicits a response, and the person of Jesus elicits a response. So here's how I want to do this. I want to talk for like eight to ten minutes and, and just give you just like a big, like scriptural gospel. Like what is it that we're actually talking about when we're asked to respond to something? And we'll talk about what God has done for us. And then the second part, what I want to do is how do we respond to that? And I'll talk about it in three ways. I'll talk about a funeral, a birth, and a wedding. All right? So let's begin. This, you could time me if you really want. I'll try to do this in eight minutes. Um, it'll, be, it'll be fine. Let me drink some water. Creation. All right, so the Bible opens in a garden, and um, God is the main character, and he's seen creating everything seen and unseen, right? Genesis 1, um, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And let me actually pause. Um, Some of us assume we know what the scriptural narrative arc is, right? You already checked out. You said, I know it. Do you? Do you? Here we go. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. What did he, he create them to do? To rule and to reign, to govern the world on God's behalf, to see the world flourish, right? And I think this is one of the most important parts of any time you talk about Genesis, any time you talk about God's intention and design, God created you to flourish, to see you in the um, truest version of yourself, okay? And in Genesis 1 and 2, there's perfection, This is God's intention as well. There's no pain, there's no sickness, there's no jealousy, there's no relational hardship, there's no war. What you have is a repeated phrase in Genesis 1 and 2, it was good. Meaning humanity in this moment had right relationship with God and with each other. But then things take a turn for the worst, you get the fall. Um, And Adam and Eve, really, they think they know better. Instead of listening to God, they listen to the serpent and ultimately to themselves, and they get a ruined opportunity to um, co-create with God. The flourishing, the shalom, the peace is broken. In fact, they thought that they could find life and freedom apart from God. That's what um, story is told in Genesis chapter 3. Augustine um, called the fall um, and sin a disordered love, choosing to love self before God. And so uh, Genesis 1 and 2 describe the, the fact that you and I were created by God to love God and to spread his peace and flourishing in the world, but we turn inwardly. We reject God and we give um, the greatest adoration, not to God, but we give it to ourselves. We give comfort to ourselves. We give attention to ourselves. And actually, it makes a lot of sense when you have um, 8 billion people on the planet thinking about themselves, turning inward on themselves, you get a world of injustice and suffering. And so in Adam and Eve, they, they turn in on themselves. They say, God, we're not actually interested. We want to create our own kingdom that revolves around ourselves. And in these chapters, Genesis um, 3 through 11, really, um, what you really get is 
um, still the graciousness of God. God is so kind and gracious, trying to find a way to right the ship with Adam and Eve's descendants, but they keep putting themselves before God. And the story begins to unravel, and you get to Genesis chapter 12, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. You get to Abraham and the people of Israel. God chooses a partner. And the amazing thing about Genesis chapter 12 is the cha- this chapter is actually absolutely key in understanding the three monotheistic religions of the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And what God does in these chapters is he comes to Abraham and he says, I want to make a covenant with you and your descendants. Your descendants are going to be, look up at the, the stars. Your descendants are going to be like the stars. Look at the sand on the, on, the, on the shore. Your descendants are going to be like that. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave the comfort of your family. I want you to go to this land that I'm going to show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing to the world. What is he saying? He's saying, Abraham, through you, I want to see flourishing. I want to see flourishing in your life, and I want to see flourishing in the world around you. And so God chooses Abraham. You're going to be a father of many nations, and then God chooses the people of Israel. And he would give Israel the same task of flourishing, governing, and co-creating like Adam and Eve. The goal was to partner with God to spread God's peace. And as the Old Testament unfolds, the um, covenant relationship begins to um, grow and deepen with the people of Israel. He has a redemptive plan through the people of Israel that um, the, the, the phrase that's so helpful is, I will be your God and you will be my people. In the Exodus, the people of Israel have found themselves in slavery under Pharaoh. God liberates them through the person of Moses. And one of the things that's so important about these these big biblical characters like Abraham and Moses is you find that God is still the hero of the story. God is the one that's faithful. In the life of Moses, you have faithfulness and unfaithfulness. When you get to David, it's faithfulness and unfaithfulness. But the point is, is that God is actually very open and willing to use broken, um, weak people to accomplish his will. So God has plans for them. He gives them the Torah. Torah literally means direction or law. And after rescuing the people and partnering with them, he defines and shapes the relationship through the law. Right? You get to the book of Leviticus, you're like, what am I reading? This is insane, right? Well, actually, laws bring structure and boundaries, and ultimately, they bring freedom. Um, I was thinking about um, the speed limit in the city. Um, the speed limit in New York City is, is basically 25 miles an hour, unless like, you're on the West Side Highway or the FDR. Is that a limitation? Well, sure. But what is the primary means of transportation in New York City? These bad boys, right? And so what hurts less? Getting hit by a car, going 40 or 25, right? The law is a boundary, and it's a limitation on people, but it's actually for everyone's benefit. And so the Torah is given, the law is given, so that people could flourish, and in their flourishing, they would be able to bless the world. But often in the story, the people of Israel, just like Adam and Eve, have disordered loves. Israel is turning towards God, turning away from God, turning towards God, turning away from God. And the next part of the scripture, the people say, look, God, other nations have a king. We want a king. And God is reluctant at first, but he ultimately gives the people what they wanted, a human king. And in a major turn of events, God chose the weakest of a family in the person of King David, who again was faithful and unfaithful, broken, weak, and sinful because God is gracious and he can work through anyone. And then you get into this um, redemptive cycle. I was loving thinking about um, the emergence of the wisdom literatures, Psalms and Proverbs. When did it come? 
when there was a king. The king needed the wisdom. The king needed to be the one spreading wisdom. And before the Old Testament finishes, you get words from the prophets. These are warnings and woes to turn back to God because God is the one who brings flourishing and brings shalom. How am I doing? Intertestamental period, right? Span of 400 years. God is quiet. Malachi to Matthew. And after years of deafening silence, God is moving into his final plan and breaking into human history. What did the people want? They wanted a king. What is God giving them? A king. God comes downstairs putting on human skin in the person of Jesus. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you see this person is 100% human, right? This person knows what it is like to be a human, and this person is 100% God. And Jesus walked the earth with a message about a not yet but right now kingdom. He walked around doing miracles and healing and telling stories and preaching and eating with those on the fringes of society and pushing back against the religious establishment of his day, showing people what? How to flourish and how to love like God, God does. And if, if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I, I wrestle. I, I wrestle with the reality of God. I, I wrestle with the goodness of God. I I wrestle with just being compelled by, by God. I, I would just say, look at the person of Jesus. Because if you want to ultimately know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is, is, is God embodied, put on flesh, the most relatable way to understand God. And if you read the Gospels, one of the things that maybe we, we underemphasize oftentimes is the perfection of Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. He dies for us. He resurrects from the grave. He, 40 days later, ascends to the Father. And then what does he say? I'm going to return and finish what I started, the flourishing and shalom. And then this last part, restoration, the church, and renewal. God in the, God in the person of Jesus came to restore what had been broken. And right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get the book of Acts, the the. the origins of the church, the first followers of Jesus. And um, the first followers of Jesus were actually called followers of the way. And the book of Acts to Revelation, what you actually get is the emergence of the body, the church as a people. And if you go and read this, it's so amazing that it's based in reality, right? These people are trying to work through conflict and figure out the ethics of following Jesus and what it means to be the family of God on earth as they um, embody and anticipate Jesus's return. In Revelation chapter 21, you get a vision for renewal and for flourishing. It says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. You catch the, 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 the tones there of that Old Testament language as a continuation of the story. And then I think there's one, one more verse there. He, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who's seated on the throne, Jesus, saying, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We're waiting for the restoration of the renewal of all things at Christ's return. That's the broader story. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in, and you say, what does that actually have to do with me today? 
right? But this is the, the big meta narrative of Scripture, and this thing we're saying the gospel fits inside of there. God had a redemptive plan inside of that story. And in the beginning, I, I began by saying, what is it that we're responding to in the gospel? Well, that big story. Like, if you think about the, the span of your life um, from start to finish, what I'm saying is, is the story that your life is telling, the story that Jesus wants to tell through your life actually fits into this broader thing. And there are components of it, right? God's faithfulness, my weakness, um, covenant relationships, um, creation, rebirth, like all of these things are actually facets of our life and ways of understanding what God is doing. And perhaps it would be good to think about um, in the first century when this word gospel was used. Um, in the Greek, it's eongelion. It basically, maybe the best way to understand it, just to reframe it a little bit differently, would be um, breaking news, right? Like you open up a website and you see that phrase, breaking news. This is what Jesus came, showed up to show us, that the gospel actually fits in this larger scriptural story. And this is it summarized um, in um, 1 Corinthians. Uh, this isn't the verse, but this is just my summary of it. Is If you were to, to break down the gospel inside of that story, what is it? That Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised, and that Christ appeared. And so the message that we're responding to is about the creator God stepping into human history, Jesus becoming a man, living a perfect life, the sin of the world, loaded upon Jesus, who dies for that sin, overcomes sin, overcomes the grave, overcomes death, rising to new life, comes to us and says, follow me and participate in my life and partner with me for the flourishing of the world. That's like the full and complete thing that Jesus has done. And that's the thing that we're called to respond to. And you would say, well, what, what ultimately did the death of Jesus accomplish? Like, what, what did that actually like, do? Like, how does that benefit me? And so let me just summarize this, and then we'll move into how to respond. Jesus died with us, this is the first part here, um, to identify with our humanity, right? And so you look at the person of Jesus, and you say, Jesus actually knows how to be human, right? Are you tired? So was Jesus when you read the scriptures. Are you navigating hardship? Are you confused? Are you wrestling with your finances? So did Jesus, right? In the person of Jesus, what we actually see is that God is not far off and ethereal and otherworldly, but actually the scriptures say when we deserve sin and death, we get life because Jesus actually was with us, right? And then instead of us, right, as a substitute, we deserve sin and death, we get life. Jesus didn't deserve death. He lived a perfect life, right? But then also for us, Right through Jesus' death, we're actually drawn into and compelled into the life of God because God so loved the world. So how do we respond to that? And I love what Paul does in Romans chapter 6. He's just like, let me give you like a visual picture of this, what Jesus has done, and you can be invited into it in an embodied way. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Jesus is saying, or um, Paul is saying that the sacrament of baptism is actually the perfect picture for what God has done and it's a way of being invited into the process, right? 
Um, baptism is, a, is an outward or an embodied response to something that's happening inwardly. It's saying, I believe Jesus did these things. Um, I believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. And I believe it so much here that I have to express it out here. And I want to talk about baptism in a literal sense in just a second. But let me give you these three ways to respond to the gospel that, that Paul is, is saying. And the first is this. To respond to the gospel, there needs to be a funeral. Romans 6.3 says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And I like how on the next slide, it's uh, Galatians 2.20 is another um, great verse. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The verses are communicating in order to respond to the gospel, there actually needs to be a funeral. There needs to be a death to the old parts of us. Uh, of us. It, it's, it's death to depending on ourselves. It's death to the false self, to the presented and smooth self. It's death to the crutches that we have in this life. It's death to the approval of our parents and our friends. Um, last week after church, um, someone came up to me and they said, I love that um, in this sort of arc of where we're going in this series that um, we're coming up out of the sin and death part. Like it's actually comforting and reassuring that we're like rising up out of this. And I thought, yes, and... It's so important to actually um, like grasp and understand the bottom or the pit because um, those are times we actually learn so much. Um, Brennan Manning says it like this. He says, the men and women who are truly filled with light are those who have gazed deeply into the darkness of their own imperfect existence. There are, there's so much to learn in life from pushing into the darker places of our life, knowing that God can actually touch those things and meet us there. The question is, are we willing to introspectively look in and say, you know what, I actually want to have a funeral for those things in my life. I actually want to look at those things and say, that's the old me. I want to put that in the past of who I am so that I can move forward. And in order to respond to the gospel, what we actually need to do is have a funeral for those things. But the good news is, of course, we're not left there. To respond to the gospel, there needs to be a birth. Verse 8 says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Right, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Or uh, another scriptural phrase that maybe you remember is, ye must be born again, right? There's, it's, it's a way of understanding you are dead, but there is new life. I was thinking a lot about this um, idea this week about um, like renewal or like rebirth, and I was thinking um, about babies, um, and one of the things I know about babies is that babies are very, very dependent. Um, my son on Friday night, um, he threw up a total of five times. Um, and the first time, he threw up in his crib and I'm putting him to bed. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I got to clean him up. So I, I take him to the bath um, and get him cleaned up. And so I can't leave him in the tub. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to put him on the couch and I'm going to go into the crib and I'm going to clean up the crib and I can put him back in there. So I put him on the, <laughs> the couch and he throws up on the couch. I'm like, all right, you're going to the bath again. Um, so I, I take him to the bath, get him cleaned up again. So now there's throw up in the, in the crib and on the couch 
And I made this mistake of putting him back on the couch. And he, I'm like sitting with him this time. I was cleaning up the couch, but I saw him about to throw up again. And so I picked him up as he's throwing up. And so he's thrown up across the carpet now. And so there's carpet in the, I mean, there's throw up in the bed, on the couch and on the carpet. And surely he's done. He's not done. And I called my wife. Thank you, wife. She's, she's so smart. She said, strap him into the stroller and clean. I was like, that's so brilliant. Strap him into the stroller. But he also threw up in the stroller. I was just like, I cannot catch a break. I was cleaning for four hours. It was just absolutely crazy. But what do I know about my son? He's fully dependent on me. Like, what if I didn't check on him in the crib with that massive amount of throw up in there, right? It's not his fault. He, he, he's learning, right? He's, he's becoming a human. This is his first time being human. I can't blame him for that. And I think that's a really important point in understanding the, the gospel is that we're like, this person is so mature and they understand the Christian life and this person is like new to this. Like, no, 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 like it, we're all new to it. We're all trying to figure out how, how to follow Jesus, right? And, and um, we have this, this mode of, of self-sufficiency that actually is sort of our default. And, and what God is inviting us into is a life of dependence on him because we're actually just like babies, Right? And I love that Paul includes in the second Corinthians passage that the old is gone, but that the new is here. Meaning the old you is still trying to creep back in. The old you is, is keep trying to telling you um, who you are and the, the, the shame of what you've done and the, the self-loathing that actually comes our way. But when God looks at us, he doesn't see those things. He looks at us and he sees his sinless, suffering son making us whole. And so we respond to the gospel with a funeral, with a birth, and then the last part is that we respond to the gospel with a wedding. And I came across this phrase. I, I have no idea where this came from. It was not me. Um, but thinking about our belief in Jesus as an abiding, restful union. Um, I loved, I can't even remember what verse it was. Verse 5. It says, for we have been united with him in a death like this. We will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. I love that this picture of um, if we're dying to ourselves, if we're saying, Jesus, I want to be raised to new life, then we're actually invited into um, like the covenant relationship of God in Christ. And this idea of an abiding restful union, I, the thing I kept thinking about was this, what do married people know, right? The wedding day is awesome, spend a lot of money, like it's, it's one day though right? That's what people know. It's like, it's one day to celebrate, and it's good to celebrate this. But people that are married know that, you know what? I wake up, and I choose this every single day. This is a daily decision, right? I have to wake up to this person every day and say, I choose you, right? And this is actually a more realistic picture, both of, of marriage, but it's also a very realistic picture of following Jesus, which is this. The invitation to follow him is a daily thing. And so we can talk about following Jesus as like this one-time deal where we cross some threshold, or we can actually talk about it in a more realistic way, which is this is a decision that I'm making every day. And so I guess my question here at the end all leads to this. Are you on that journey? Like, are you on the journey of, of following Jesus? Are you, are you finding yourselves in that larger story, but your story sort of subsumed up into it? And if, you, if you're like, I don't know, that's Okay. I think that's a huge part of understanding the process, right? And I love that Paul mentions baptism because baptism is just such a beautiful gift that God has given us to give an expression to this. And I know a lot of people are confused about baptism, 
but it's that outward symbol of who's Lord and Savior of your life. Going under the water, you're saying some things about me need to die. It's not going to be perfect once you're, you're baptized. That's not the point. But it's symbolically saying, I want to turn away from my old self and be raised to new life in Jesus. I want to resonate with Jesus in his death, but also in his resurrection. And then like a wedding, you're united with Jesus. And so if that's you today, like, I just want to say, um, uh, during the last song, our prayer team is going to be over uh, to your left. Um, come talk to them. Come talk to them about their baptism. They would absolutely love um, to talk. Um, I would love to talk to you about what maybe that looks like for you. Um, but also, if, if you're here and you'd say, I've been doing that for a long time. I've been baptized. Like, respond. How do you respond 100th time? How do you respond the 150th time? What does that look like? I think that's equally important to think about. Does the story still um, compel me and resonate with me as I think about my following of Jesus? And so let's, um, let's end here. I want to I wanna take communion together today. Um, we, we, we're really, I mean, this is, the whole thing is leading us to communion, really, these two sacraments, baptism and communion. Um, we're going to come and take the bread. That's Jesus's body broken for us. We uh, take the juice. It's, um, it's to remember Jesus's blood poured out for the forgiveness uh, of sins. And so um, anyone is welcome um, um, to do that. If the servers want to come forward, I'll pray, and then we'll partake of this together. Um, if you want prayer today, come during the last song um, and, and receive that. Let's pray. So, Lord, I love you, and I thank you for this big story that you're telling. I don't know, for many of us, we're trying to make sense of this week, we're trying to make sense of where we're at in our life, take stock of um, this story that we're living out. I just pray, Lord, that we would look at this big, grand story and say, you know what? It is compelling. It's good. God has had a plan from the very beginning and the origins of creation and I get to be a part of it. God, I pray that we would be a community um, that's flourishing, that we would be about um, the flourishing of others in our buildings and in our neighborhoods, and that you would be honored by that, that we're drawn into that, and we get to be a part of what you're doing in that. And so, Lord, as we partake of communion, maybe that means a bit of personal renewal. Maybe it means a time where some of the darker spots of our life actually need your light and hope. So God, I just pray that as we partake of these elements, they would be an embodied reminder that we should respond to your gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.